Welcome back to Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home, and to Carmelite Conversations. My co-host, Frances Harry, is not with me, unfortunately, today. Uh, she has a, a family celebration that she's participating in, and so we send her our prayers and our best wishes, and uh, we look forward to having her back uh, together, uh, the two of us back together again next week. In the meantime, I'm going to pick up on a, a series that Francis and I began a couple weeks ago uh, when uh, they were after I had to actually miss a week um, due to some complications with the birth of a grandson. I don't know whether uh, Francis was able to mention that in solicit prayers, but um, God be praised, everything worked out fine. And our little Benjamin Patrick Danis is actually home safe and uh, secure and everything um, moving along as it should. So we, we thank the Lord for that. Uh, and as a result of that, I think Francis chose to go in a slightly different direction last week with the program and cover a different topic. But I'm going to uh, circle back and get us uh, on track with a text that we had been covering called The Little Catechism of the Act of Oblation of St. Therese of the Child Jesus. This is actually Therese's uh, actual formal act of oblation to the Lord, the prayer she herself drafted and we covered in the first week with Francis and I together. Uh, some of the history of that, we won't go over that again, um, and certainly some of the benefits that accrued to St. Therese as a result of both her drafting this prayer and continually praying it day after day after day, in fact, for the rest of her life uh, from, uh, from the point uh, where she drafted this uh, this particular act uh, of oblation, another word for oblation might be sacrifice, uh, that she made of herself to the Lord. And so we're gonna cover, uh, as we began a couple weeks ago, some of the specific terminology in the act to get a deeper understanding of what was in uh, Therese's heart and her soul as she both drafted this act of oblation and continued to pray it, as I say, throughout the balance of her life. But let me, before we begin that, begin as we always do in prayer. And so I'm going to turn this evening to the Holy Spirit, a prayer specifically to the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit might open our hearts and our minds to gain a deeper understanding of the depth of this prayer that St. Therese has to share with us and how we might begin to apply it to our own individual lives not again, as I had suggested in the first week when we talked this, um, sort of adopting Therese's prayer as our own, we should make our own act of oblation, our own commitment and consecration to the Lord using our own words. And perhaps Therese's experience can help us in that. But as we begin, let us pray to the Holy Spirit in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. O Holy Spirit, divine spirit of light, and love. We consecrate to thee our understanding, our heart, and our will, our whole being, for time and for all eternity. May our understanding be always submissive to thy heavenly inspirations and to the teachings of the Catholic Church, of which thou art the infallible guide. May our hearts be ever inflamed with love of God and our neighbor. May our wills be ever more conformed to the divine will, and may our entire lives be a faithful imitation of the life and the virtues of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, to whom, with the Father and with Thee, Holy Spirit, be honor and glory forever. 
In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, as I said, I want to pick up again on our text from, if you're interested in getting a copy, it's from the Sophia Institute Press, uh, which can be found simply at sophiainstitute.com uh, on the internet. And you can find this, uh, really it's a pamphlet-sized text entitled, The Little Catechism of the Act of Oblation of St. Therese of the Child Jesus. Now, in the first week, we got through both a complete reading of the act itself. We won't go through that um, at this point, but I do want to begin to pick out some of the individual phrases that Therese uses here uh, because some of them may uh, sound a little daunting to our modern ears and uh, perhaps even confusing. And so this text tries to provide some um, description and understanding and context uh, for the words that she uses so we can get a better idea of exactly what it is uh, Therese is trying to communicate to the Lord and may, as I say, incorporate uh, some of her own thinking into our own individual acts of oblation or acts of consecration. In the sixth question that little pamphlet presents, it, it, it's uh, simply, uh, in what disposition should the soul be found who desires to draw down to herself or himself this merciful love? And we may have covered this sixth question, but I want to go over it again because the preeminent term here is trustful humility. The soul should offer herself to the good God as an empty vessel. If you're familiar at all with some of the literature around Therese or her own writings for that matter, you're uh, no doubt familiar with this term, empty vessel. Therese wanted to be the empty vessel. Uh, when she presented herself before the Lord on her day of judgment, she wanted to be found empty with nothing but the merits that Jesus Christ would provide her. Of course, she is uh, the little child, the little flower, and she always cast herself in that light of a very needy person, someone who was in complete, a state of complete dependence on the Lord. And we'll see the strength of that, uh, that perspective in just a moment. Uh, but as a consequence of that, Therese didn't want uh, to try and build a uh, monument to herself on all of her acts of charity or her prayers or even her sufferings which were significant if you've ever read about some of Therese's sufferings you know uh, she endured a great dear, deal even in her young life um, some of it very deeply psychologically challenging for her but even that uh, she didn't believe in any way constituted uh, what she would bring to the Lord she would bring simply the merits that he had uh, um, shared with her as a result of her giving herself over to him completely and allowing him to take complete control of all the circumstances of her life. And so this idea of trustful humility is very important. Another word that we might use for it, maybe perhaps a, a bit more familiar to us, is simply the word confidence. And there's a wonderful text I can uh, strongly uh, encourage you to get a copy of, simply called The Power of Confidence. It's by a Carmelite named Conrad de Meester. Uh, he was a Belgian and very much familiar with Therese and with her spirituality uh, and built uh, a whole construct around her simple uh, idea of confidence, reliance on uh, her Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Again, 
It's simply titled The Power of Confidence by Conrad Demeester. It's actually available uh, through St. Paul's uh, Press and uh, one that I can't recommend highly enough uh, if you want to get a deeper understanding of this whole idea of confidence in the Lord. Well, next we move on to uh, the question that is uh, related to um, the correcting of our faults. And it simply suggests, should the soul not first try to correct her faults, or at least to improve herself in some way? Again, we may have touched on this lightly in our first conversation, uh, but it's very important that we understand the Lord ultimately will do the work of purification in our hearts and in our minds, uh, purifying our intellect, our memory, and our will. And yes, we certainly have some responsibility uh, to begin that process in what John would call the active nights of sense and even of spirit in purifying ourselves of certainly anything we know to be of sinful nature uh, and even things that may be inordinate attachments. But what Therese is teaching here is that no, actually, it is not necessary. She gives herself, just as she is, without any preparation. It is, the use, it is useless, she says, to want to begin by having a perfect fruit, by removing all the defects beforehand. Love, she says, in cooperation with goodwill. This is what will do the work. In fact, the quote from Isaiah, Isaiah 125, describes this well. And I will turn my hand to thee, said the Lord, and I will clean and purge away the dross. Some of you are no doubt familiar with the phrase dross. Dross is what um, uh, manifests itself when something is brought to uh, a boil. Gold, as an example, dross comes to the surface. It's the impurities that are resident within um, the, uh, the material uh, that is being purged and purified. In this case, our soul uh, is full of dross. It may be um, explicitly sinful, or it may just be our concupiscence, our predisposition, uh, our weaknesses, and our misery. And what Therese is saying is, ultimately, we have to give all of that over to the Lord. We have to stop believing that it is our individual responsibilities to purify ourselves. Our call is to love. It is to conform ourselves to the will of the Father, to conform ourselves in love to Jesus Christ. And if we do that, he will do this work within us. And that's what she's describing here as um, the will to do this work. The next question that the text brings up, and it's one that, as I suggested at the beginning, uh, addresses one of the terms that we might find a little bit off-putting, a little bit too daunting for us. And that's the term victim. But by this word victim, Therese did not mean to den denote uh, in, in some way um, that we were being victimized or that we were being uh, terrorized or uh, subject to some form of abuse. Rather, here, her expression is a victim of love in opposition to the term a victim of justice in a spontaneous outburst from her heart. She didn't wish uh, anything other than uh, to be a beautiful attribute to God. Uh, to be less favored than others, which at the same time is what makes her a victim. Um, she's not looking to, as I said, a sort of uh, build her own castle in heaven or create her future uh, holiness. Instead, what she's actually looking to do is allow God to do that work within her. 
and to create his holiness within her. Her victimhood then isn't a victim of justice, but victim of love. She becomes subject to the love that resides within her own heart. And we'll see as we continue to progress through these uh, various terms that she uses, how it is that we become subject to and victimized by the love that literally burns within us. It takes hold of us. It, it captures us. It restrains us uh, in much the same way that we might think of victimhood. But this is not the victimhood of justice. It is a victim of love. Someone who becomes subject to, uh, captured by, consumed by her love for the Lord. And the practice of this is the beginning, of course, is the oblation she herself makes. And not only the continuous recitation, the reading uh, of this oblation every day, day after day, perhaps many times a day in her case, but it is also putting it into practice, putting all of these aspirations of her heart into practice in the course of her day-to-day -day life. And of course, reliance on the sacraments, reliance on prayer continually, uh, that the Lord and the Holy Spirit might take over this process for her. Well, the ninth question is actually uh, introducing an even more challenging term than this term, victim. And it's the term holocaust. Now, holocaust, in Therese's mind, means that the soul is plunged into the rapturous fire of God's infinite love. The term holocaust, unfortunately, in our era is somewhat tainted by its use uh, during World War II and the uh, obviously horrendous circumstances um, uh, of the Jews under um, the Nazi regime and what happened to them and Holocaust was applied to that. Ironically, as we know, uh, the horror of the experience of the Jews included in some cases literally the burning of the bodies. And so it's not entirely inconsistent. We don't want to go into the theology of the Holocaust or um, the uh, history of, uh, of God's interaction with the Jewish people. Um, certainly some uh, of the ideas related to uh, Therese's own oblation can be seen in, in uh, both the victimhood and the holocaust of what the Jewish people went through during those, those horrible years. But here, holocaust is intended to mean becoming fire itself as a result of this love that we talked about burning from within Therese's heart and literally consuming her, consuming her in a way that she uh, couldn't necessarily control. It went beyond her own uh, experience of it and beyond her ability uh, at some stage to even control what was happening. Plunged into the rapturous fire of God's infinite love, aspires ardently, desires, as I said, to be wholly consumed, to be so transformed that she would become the fire herself. This is an example of what we talk about, in fact, when we uh, discuss the purgative process of purgatory. Um, we aren't there just to suffer. Certainly, if we have the residue of sin, that has to be removed and there'll be a pain associated with that experience, however it may be experienced. Uh, we won't speculate. But the idea of fire is very deliberate in, in Catholic literature, the use of that analogy to fire because it is the consuming fire. We know our God, as we understand from Hebrews, and that, of course, taken from the Old Testament, our God is a consuming fire. It doesn't mean he's trying to hurt us or injure us or, or uh, um, 
make us uncomfortable in any way. He wants to consume us. And what happens is that that fire that is generated as a result of our interaction, our continual intercourse with the Lord through prayer and through a desire within our heart, literally um, increases that fire within our own heart, within our own spirit. And we begin to be consumed both from within and without. This is a true holocaust. This is the true meaning of the word holocaust. Another word that's used actually in a number of uh, the writings of Carmelite saints, in fact, Therese herself uses it, St. Elizabeth of the Trinity uses it, John of the Cross perhaps uses it the most, and that's the word immolation. Immolation is a term John uses throughout his writings, and it refers exactly to this phenomenon, this experience of a consuming fire, the fire that consumes us from within. Now, for the state of the damned, unfortunately, that's a perpetual uh, condition. Um, the fire that doesn't go out and the fire that continually consumes. For those of us uh, who have given ourselves over, either through this act of oblation or continuous um, uh, interaction uh, with the Lord, that consuming fire becomes the very existence of our life, our very presence. That consuming fire is nothing other than the Holy Spirit. It's nothing other than the full manifestation of love. And again, we use analogies like fire uh, because they help us to understand this idea of consuming, um, immolation, holocaust, something that comes within, from within and literally burns and takes over and consumes the person uh, to the point of, um, yes, in some ways losing themselves, but really in a fuller sense, becoming the fullest expression of who they really are and who they were always intended to be in God's plan. Well, doubtless, uh, the next term that's going to lead to um, perhaps some concern, um, and again, Therese uses this term specifically, is the term martyrdom. Now, martyrdom is, again, a, one of those terms I think is sometimes misunderstood by many in our church. Certainly, there are martyrs. We can point to uh, thousands of martyrs in the history of the church, those who died at the hands of, uh, of uh, violence and, and through other means um, for their faith. And uh, no doubt, as, as we know, the church is built on the blood of the martyrs. But at the same time, there are martyrs who we are not necessarily um, identifying as martyrs. I could make the case, and others have, uh, that St. John Paul II, Pope St. John Paul II, in his own way was a martyr, suffering immensely for the church and in many of the uh, last months of his life, of course, uh, under intense pain and uh, um, a great deal of difficulty even to conduct his papal duties, which he continued to try to do. He is in, in many ways a martyr for the church, even though his death was not brought about by violence on his body by somebody else. And there are many, many saints we could point to. He's certainly the most recent and perhaps best example. But uh, martyrdom here is not simply uh, the losing of one's life in defense of the faith. It is giving one's life in this consummation of love, in this um, whole immolation of, of, of the person uh, for the love of Christ. Now, according to the expression that St. Therese uses, martyrdom of her life is a state of the soul created by an infinite tenderness for God, this overflowing without measure into the human heart, necessarily uh, the heart is necessarily limited. But in this case, it becomes unlimited, becomes consumed, and overflows with God from within. 
She says, this is Therese, I implore you to let the flood tide of infinite tenderness pent up in you overflow into my soul, her prayer to God, so that I may become a martyr of your love, O my God. She completes the expression of this thought by saying, May this martyrdom, after having prepared me to appear before you, break life's web at last. Here we see both the terms victimhood and martyrdom combined in this particular phrase in the prayer. This disproportion between the infinite infinite tenderness of God and the finite reality of the human heart, the poor little creature, will one day be broken. That frail, frail web will be broken in what Therese would refer to as a death of love. And we know this about the saints, you know, it is our ambition, really, literally, um, as St. John of the Cross said so well, uh, in the end, to die of love. In the last hours, John says, we will all be measured in love. And it is our aspiration, our genuine de desire to be consumed by love. You know, there's a wonderful priest who said to me one time, be sure to be dead long before the coroner defines you so. And I wondered what he meant, and he explained to me, we as Carmelites, we as Christians, we as the baptized, are called to die to self, but to die for love, to die in love, to be consumed by love. It isn't simply a giving up of ourselves so God can then reward us in some way. God doesn't want to just reward us for whatever it is we've done. He wants to literally consume us and to have us be consumed by his love that fire that burns within us, that causes us to be victims and martyrs, the Holocaust, the immolation of everything that is within us that is not him, is consumed by this God who himself is a consuming fire. This is what Therese is talking about in her act of oblation. This is the height of her spiritual maturity manifesting itself in these words. And again, as I suggest, some of them perhaps a bit daunting, to our modern ears when we hear words like holocaust and victim and martyrdom. Uh, many people shy away from these terms because they don't understand them. They don't understand the idea of being consumed by love, being so drawn into the presence of our Lord, being so taken uh, with being in his presence, being so taken of the desire to be transformed by him that we literally would give up everything. We would cast ourselves into the fire St. Elizabeth of the Trinity has a wonderful um, a phrase that she talks about uh, in her writing, um, this idea that we ultimately um, turn and simply cast ourselves into the fire of consuming love. And it is by doing so that we allow the Lord to do the final work of purification in us. She says, I see, this is Elizabeth of the Trinity now, I see my nothingness, my misery, my weakness, I perceive that I'm incapable of progress, of perseverance. I see the multitude of shortcomings, my defects. I appear in my own indigence. I place my joy in nothing other than everything that can immolate, destroy, and humble me, for I want to make room for my master. She says, souls at this stage think much less of the work of destruction and detachment that remain for them to do than of plunging into the furnace of love, burning within them, which is none other than the Holy Spirit. So this is Elizabeth of the Trinity, St. Elizabeth of the Trinity, echoing uh, the very words of Therese of Lisieux uh, in this idea of 
casting ourselves into a consuming fire that she contends, Elizabeth contends, is actually already within us. It's burning within us. And this work, as Therese had suggested, that we will not be able to do on our own is done finally by the Lord. It takes the courage to turn ourselves to the Lord. It takes the abandonment uh, to casting ourselves into the fire of the Holy Spirit. And then it requires that we simply allow the Lord to do that work of purification in us. Well, we've reached the halfway point, so I'm going to stop and take a break here. Reminder that you're listening to Carmelite Conversations on Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. We'll take a brief break and we'll be right back. Yeah. We're good. We'll look back in a couple of minutes. Okay. Well, welcome back to Carmelite Conversations on Radio Maria. We're going to pick up on the theme of Therese's oblation, uh, the act of oblation to merciful love. We need to make sure to emphasize that, that phrase, merciful love, because it is an act of oblation to merciful love. And Therese recognized that it was to merciful love that she was sacrificing herself, if you can accept that term, uh, that she was consecrating herself, a more familiar and perhaps comfortable term for many of us. But Therese also knew that many people would perhaps find this uh, act of oblation a bit daunting, and even some of the terminology. Uh, but more especially, I think what she understood was that the idea of someone in her condition, uh, someone she recognized and acknowledged to be weak, uh, full of misery, she might even say, uh, certainly not capable of great feats. Therese was uh, known for having said, I can't do the great fasts, I can't do the great uh, prayer vigils. And though she had wanted to be a missionary, of course, her physical condition um, uh, precluded uh, her fulfilling that dream of being able to go to foreign uh, missions across the world. And in so many ways, of course, we know uh, Therese uh, mirrored for us this uh, childlike faith in God, but also a childlike dependence on God. And so we can be led to wonder, how is it that somebody uh, in Therese's state of life uh, aspire to such heights of victimhood, martyrdom, uh, being consumed by the love of God? And more to the point, I think, what we might question is, how do I think that I can be um, a great saint like we know Therese to be today? How can I, in my brokenness, in my woundedness, uh, in my weakness, and with the misery and the history of my sinful nature, we all have it, but how can I think that I might, too, uh, be drawn into this intimate union with our Lord, consumed by love, full of love, filled with a fire, uh, a holocaust, an immolation of love? How is it even possible? St. Therese says, it is actually my very weakness that emboldens me to offer myself as this victim to your love, O Jesus. And again, later she says, the weaker and the more miserable we are, 
the better are we fitted to this very operation of a consuming and transforming love. So rather than acknowledging or accepting uh, what so many of us might uh, fear that we are not capable of being raised into a divine union, into an intimate relationship with our Lord, growing in this consuming fire that would literally take us over um, and, and place us before our Lord. Rather than accepting that, Therese says, it's the very hesitancy, it's the very reservation, it is the very reluctance you have, or the reasons for your reluctance, that constitute the, the very means through which you too should offer yourself in this way. It may be said of Therese, like Jesus, who came to win God's merciful love, not just, not the just rather, but sinners. In the days of old, exclaims our saint, she writes, victims, pure and without blemish, were alone acceptable to the great and the all-powerful God. To satisfy divine justice, perfect victims had to be offered. But to the law of fear has succeeded the law of love. And love has chosen me, she says, for a holocaust. Chosen me, a weak, an imperfect creature. And is this choice not worthy of love? Yes, she says, that love may be fully satisfied. It must come down to nothingness and transform this nothingness into fire. You see, Therese would argue that it is our very uh, nothingness, our weakness, what we perceive to be all of our shortcomings. And again, we all have them. And so often we dwell on them, especially as we progress in the spiritual life and we come to know, uh, truly understand what it is that Christ did for us, the sacrifice he made, the beauty uh, of the love that our Lord has for us, we begin to see our blemishes, we begin to see our shortcomings, we begin to see all of those things that throughout our entire life have kept us from the presence of the Lord. And we desire it, but we fear it. We fear it because we know our condition. Well, let us remember that what Therese did, all little souls may do. She in fact said, O oh Jesus, I feel that were it possible to find a weaker soul in mine, you would take delight in showering upon her still even greater favors. You see, listeners, it is our very weakness. It's our brokenness. That is what draws God's merciful love to us. That is what serves as the very fuel for the fire of love that will burn within us. If we perceive ourselves as doing pretty well, far enough along in our spiritual journey. I pray enough. I've got enough rosaries under my belt. I have already done enough works of charity. If that's our mindset, if we're comfortable with that, and it wouldn't necessarily be expressed with the sort of sarcastic tone that I use, but if we feel confident and comfortable in our own uh, walk with the Lord at this stage, it will be very difficult for us to find fuel for the love that the Lord wants to generate from within us. The gift of the Holy Spirit who consumes within us all the impurities, all of the dross that we talked about that bubbles to the surface and, and simply goes up in a puff of smoke. What Therese is saying is it is those very elements of our reservations for pursuing this intimate union with God that serve as the basis for the union with God. And in fact, to the degree that we feel unworthy, that we feel uh, incapable, 
It is to that degree that God's grace and his merciful love will reach deeper into our hearts and generate the fire that is necessary to bring us into union with him. Next question says, has not the soul who makes the act of oblation a secret hope of reward? So what Therese is saying here, what the questioner of the act is saying is, isn't there the possibility, if we acknowledge our weakness and we allow it to serve as the fuel of this fire of love, isn't there the slight possibility that we might actually be looking to simply build those castles in heaven for ourselves? Well, our saint replies in a formula which is itself of the act. She says, I have no wish to amass merits for heaven. That at the close of this life, I shall appear before you with empty hands. We talked about that a moment ago. For I ask not, Lord, that you would count my works. Again, she says in the book that she's famous for, The Story of a Soul, it is not the riches and glory, even the glory of heaven that my heart seeks. What I ask for is love. This is a very mature understanding of the spirituality of Therese. It is a mature understanding of spirituality in general, one that she clearly grasped even in her short life. What Therese came to recognize was that if our desire for heaven, if our works, if our prayers, if our aspirations, even for the benefit of those around us, is simply founded on a desire to achieve our goal, to reach the end, um, to acquire something, then it's misguided. It doesn't mean it won't lead us to heaven, but it does mean that along the way we will have tainted the purity of our love in some way. You see, she's not practicing a mercenary love. It isn't that she wants to acquire something. Therese wants to become something. She wants to become someone. It is not to seek her own beauty that she begs our Lord to consume all within her, all of her imperfections in this fire of his love. It is solely that she may retain the privilege of being able to give him joy, of making some compensation for his divine heart. She says, I long to console you for the ingratitude of the wicked. And I pray you, take from me even the power to displease you. You see where Therese has taken this consummation in love she says, it isn't about my acquiring something. It isn't about my uh, gaining heaven. It is simply about my becoming something. And in order to become the purest version of ourselves, then all the impurities have to be removed. One of the impurities she realizes is this power to displease the Lord, even inadvertently. And we may, throughout the course of a day, sin many times inadvertently. It isn't intentional. But this uh, weakness that still resides within us gives us the power, in her words, to potentially displease the Lord. Her prayer is not, will make me perfect. She says, remove even the power that might displease you, Lord. That's a powerful prayer in and of itself. And it's an acknowledgement both of her frailty, her recognition that she might fall many times, and also an acknowledgement and a recognition that God genuinely desires to do this and he desires to do it in a way that he chooses to do it. And what we are asked to do is to avail ourselves of that work. Hence her prayer, remove from me even the power to displease you, O Lord. Well, doesn't this act nevertheless 
obtain for the soul some personal advantage. So building on our previous question, if the motivation is simply the acquisition of heaven, if it's the um, identification as a saintly person, if it's to have others acknowledge us as holy, well then we know we're going to be off course. It isn't to acquire something, it is to become something, to become the very model that we've been presented in the person of Jesus Christ. But doesn't it nonetheless, in the, in the next question, obtain for the soul some personal advantage? Well, the simple answer is yes, of course. Although our saint did not seek directly her motives for being far removed from all personal interests, there are nonetheless benefits that accrue as a result of her both drafting of this oblation, of um, active oblation of, to merciful love, and her continually reading it, praying it, and living it. The first was a continual purification of her soul, which is what she desired. Her imperfections are constantly consumed by this love. She says, in the words of Therese, ah, since that happy day of my oblation, Love penetrates and surrounds me at each moment. This merciful love renews and it purifies me, leaving in my heart no trace of sin. Now, of course, this is a continual process. Therese acknowledges that. It isn't something that happens to us overnight. It is a transformation, and by virtue of the word transformation, we know that there's time associated with it. But she knows what's happening to her. She knows that she's being transformed. She knows that she's being drawn deeper into this love. And she acknowledges that is a desire of hers, to be purified. Secondly, a higher perfection stamped on all the details of her life. She says, when a soul is wholly consecrated to love, all of her actions, even the most indifferent, are marked by this divine seal. Well, I said a moment ago that St. John of the Cross teaches us um, that at the end of our life, of course, we'll be measured in love. But he says before that, even the tiniest act of love is worth more than hundreds of hours of charitable endeavors, whatever those might be. The purification of our heart, the purification of our love, the purification of us as members, as cells within the body of Christ accrues more benefit to the body overall, even than our individual works. Why is that true? Why is that possible? Because all of our works, as we've already discovered, despite their uh, admirable character and whatever their motivation, they all have some minor taint, some impurity that motivates us or, or manifests itself even in the action of the work. It doesn't make us bad. It makes us human. It makes us frail. It makes us uh, a fallen people. But everything that we do has some measure still of self within it. And so what John of the Cross is saying to us in that phrase is that the only thing that is pure in love is this pure love. And the acts that we do, as admirable as they may be, are not as beneficial to the body as the purification, even one ounce of the purification of our love. Thirdly, the benefit uh, that accrues is a constant and ever more enlightening effusion of truth. And by truth, as I believe we discussed in the first, first week, we mean humility, for this love is the light as well as heat. Therese says, my soul is all shining and gilded because it is exposed to the rays of love. If this divine sun withheld from me his rays, my soul would immediately become obscured and enveloped in darkness. 
That is not only an expression of a person of humility, it is an expression of truth. And truth and humility go hand in hand. Our condition before God is one of neediness, one of desire to be transformed, to be fulfilled as the person he created us to be. We're in a constant state of want before the Lord. That's truth. It is humility to acknowledge it, but it is truth. And so the two words must go together. This light preserves in the soul the sense ever more realized of her littleness, her nothingness, and at the same time of God's divine mercy. The soul feels with all the saints what pleases God more than most generous aspirations is to see me love my littleness and my poverty, my blind trust in his mercy. This is my only treasure. What powerful words from Therese. Her only treasure is an acknowledgement of her poverty, of her blind trust, her littleness before his great mercy. That is the treasure of the human heart. A fourth benefit that we can speak about here, after having lived her life for love, the soul, in Therese's words, will take her flight unhindered to the eternal embrace of God's merciful love. Therefore, without passing through purgatory, St. Therese promises that for victims of love, there will be no judgment, but rather the good God will hasten to reward the eternal delights, the love for him that he will see burning in their hearts has borne. The fire of love is more sanctifying than the fire of purgatory. You see, the fire of love is based on faith. It's based on an oblation, a sacrifice, a consecration, an act on our part. In purgatory, souls no longer have the ability to act. Their will has been removed. All they can do is await the final work of the Lord, the final purification that has to be done in them. But in this state, Therese tells us, in love, <clears throat> we can participate in that purification. We can make the decision. We can take the act of oblation to merciful love. We can dispose ourselves. We can present ourselves. We can give ourselves over to the Lord and accept what it is that he desires to do for us. And what if we understood is the end condition of his effort. We too desire more than anything else. Again, in the words of Elizabeth of the Trinity, and these are somewhat challenging words because they um, perhaps again fly in the face of our understanding uh, of this process that we are involved in. But Elizabeth says, our aptitude for receiving his grace, his love, depends on the inner integrity with which we move towards him. She goes on to say, we will be glorified in the measure in which we will have been conformed to the image of his divine son. Quite frankly, what she's saying here is, we will not all end up at the same state of glory. I hope that's not news to any of our listeners. The simple reality of heaven is that we are all called to complete intimacy and union with our Lord. But it is the degree to which we dispose ourselves to this work that we allow God to do the work within us. St. Elizabeth goes on with these words. She says that nothing may draw me out of this beautiful silence within. I must always maintain the same disposition the same solitude, the same withdrawal, the same stripping of myself in my desires, my fears, my joys, my sorrows. If all these movements, these four passions, are not perfectly directed for God, I will not be a holy person. 
She's saying to us, Elizabeth's words are saying to us exactly what Therese is saying, that it is disposing ourselves, it is bringing into conformity our will with the will of God that allows God to do this work in us. Now, in terms of prayer, in terms of disposition of the heart, it is not being captured by these passions, not being drawn off into emotional uh, reactions or fears or doubts or anxieties or uh, desires that are inconsistent with what God may uh, plan, have planned for us. It is staying the course and knowing that God has a perfect desire to complete the work within us if we will only dispose ourselves, if we will only avail ourselves, if we will consecrate ourselves to him. Does it not, this act, she says, Therese, also arouse a zeal for souls? Yes, of course. It procures for the soul, surrendered unreservedly to divine love, an immense apostolic influence. And so here we see, in Therese's words, the fruit that is born of this act of oblation, not just for ourselves, we've just covered those in, in some detail, but for the church as a whole. And this, by virtue of the privileged place that the act rightly wins for her in the bosom of the church. In Therese's words again, in the heart of my mother, the church, I shall be loved. May the soul repeat with St. Therese, thanks to it, she will be all, contributing everywhere and at all times to all the advances and the victories in the mission field of the church. Love comprises all the vocations. Love alone is the motive power for all of the members of the church and embraces all times, all places. Love is eternal. The efficacy of its hidden influence cannot be surpassed by any other activity. You see, our transformation, our willingness to allow ourselves to be transformed into love is what gives the Lord the opportunity to work and to use us to the fullest extent that he desires to. Our saint, Saint Therese, likes to assure us like St. John of the Cross, as I've said, the smallest act of pure love is of greater value to the church than all other works united together. It is this disposition to purification that gives the Lord the room to work. With all the victims of love sharing the same privileges, this is the next question, will all these victims share in the same privileges? Only in the proportion in which they surrender themselves, again, echoing the words of Elizabeth of the Trinity. The soul is consumed by love only in so far as she surrenders herself to love. We have to un understand, listeners, that our impact on the church throughout the course of our life will be based on the degree to which we have surrendered ourselves to the work of the Lord within us, not the degree to which we ourselves have taken on that work and with our admirable desires to serve the church are going about doing the things that we think need to be done. It is only the degree to which we avail ourselves of the Lord's work. And then he will draw us into the mission fields. He will draw us into the apostolic endeavors. He will point us in the direction that he wants us to go. And it may not be what we think uh, we are best suited for or even called to, but it will be the Lord's work and it will be born of the fruit of this fire of love. The next question, next to last question, will these perfect victims of love be very many? Well, in his uh, comments on the beatification of St. Therese, His Holiness Pope Pius XI said that he prayed that there might be an army, a legion, if you will, of these little victims. 
But St. John of the Cross might lead us to think differently about that. Unfortunately, the reality is, as he suggests, St. John of the Cross suggests, very few, very few, I won't quote the numbers that John shares, but very few souls will reach this degree of love. I pray that the listeners of this presentation might be among them, each and every one of us. But it will be based on our desire to give ourselves over to the work of the Lord within us. And that requires prayer. That requires our frequent uh, receipt of the sacraments. And it requires accepting the suffering and the challenges that inevitably will be presented to us in this process. The last question in the first phase of our pamphlet, which has to do with preparation for the act of oblation, says, might it not be preferable through fear of infidelity, of failing, to renounce entering this legion of childlike souls that Pius XI referred to? Therese would answer this rather bluntly. Certainly not. No more than the Holy Church renounces to convert baptism on a child whose perseverance there is no assurance. If the Church is willing to confer baptism, when we know there is the very real possibility that that baptized soul might fall away, should we then choose to not make ourselves available, even at the risk that we might not have the courage to go forward? Instead, in those days, I will raise up a poor and lowly people that shall trust in the name of the Lord. We know that the Lord will fight for us. We know that the Lord will make this possible for us if we will avail ourselves, if we will let the Lord have his way with us, he will ignite that fire within us. We need to step forward in faith. We need to raise our hands and say, yes, I want to be a victim of love. I ask to be a martyr. I ask to participate in the Holocaust, the immolation, the consuming fire of love that will burn within me all of my sins, all the impurities, but all the benefits that it will accrue as a result of it that we covered, will also be mine. And what is the end of this exercise, this preparation, this act of oblation? It isn't just the acquisition of heaven. That's, that's uh, uh, almost given. It is the transformation in love. It is the fulfillment of everything that we were called into being to become what God had planned for us from the very beginning. As I close today, I want to turn to Therese's own words. In fact, a miraculous uh, invocation to Therese is the title of this prayer. And I ask you to please bow your heads and listen carefully to her words as we pray this, or, or the words of the prayer to Therese. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. O glorious Saint Therese, whom Almighty God has raised up to aid and inspire the human family, we implore your miraculous intercession. You are so powerful in obtaining every need of body and spirit from the heart of God. Holy Mother Church proclaims you prodigy of miracles, the greatest saint of modern times. Now we fervently beseech you to answer our petition, to be drawn into merciful love, and to carry out your promises of spending heaven doing good on earth, of letting fall from heaven a shower of roses. Little flower, give us your childlike faith to see the face of God and the people and experiences of our lives, and to love God with full confidence. St. Therese, our sister in Carmel, we will fulfill your plea to be made known everywhere, and we will continue to lead others to Jesus through you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. 
Well, a reminder that you've been listening to Carmelite Conversations on Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. Until we're with you again next week, God bless.